there, there are a few substitutes for a quiet time of reflection, I think, in our world with such a great, crazy pace. A couple things for you. One, uh, looking at the radar, it looks like there could be some heavy rain uh, during our worship experience, and so um, it's probably going to get loud at some point. So let's just acknowledge that now, and then we don't all get distracted later uh, when it happens. Uh, the other is this, looking out at our 4th of July weekend. On July 3rd and 4th, we'll be having worship experiences this coming weekend. Uh, we will not offer our 10.30 a.m. worship experience next Sunday. Uh, instead, we're offering a 4.30 p.m. on Saturday. So we'll have Saturday worship, 4.30 p.m. right here. It's a family worship experience. We'll have a cry room available, and then we'll have a 9 a.m. worship experience next Sunday. And so if you come at 10.30 like you did today, next Sunday, um, you'll likely find a very quiet place. And so, uh, again, 4.30 Saturday, uh, 9 on Sunday. Uh, we're doing that because we know that the 4th of July is... Uh, near and dear to many of your hearts. Last year, you didn't get to have the same celebrations that you look forward to. We know that many of you are planning on participating, but we wanna do everything we can to help God stay at the focus, uh, be the focus and at the forefront of what we're doing. So 4.30 Saturday, 9 a.m. Sunday, and then on July 11th, we'll be back to normal, 9 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for just the opportunity to be uh, with so many who love you and are striving to follow you, who look to you as uh, savior and king and teacher. Father, would you shape us through your word? Um, there is no substitute for the transformative power of your truth, inspired by your spirit, given to uh, people throughout um, so many years that still speaks with relevance today, continues to change lives. God, help us discover you in the midst of your words. Help us to be changed. Uh, Father, I, I pray specifically now for those who don't yet have um, that relationship with you. They've never responded to you in faith. May you draw them into your life through your word and through your teaching this morning. God, would you continue to teach us how to model and live this spiritual discipline of hospitality? Uh, you are good and you are faithful and you are true. And it's in your name we pray and trust the name of Jesus. Amen. I heard years ago that history is a great teacher. Uh, anybody else ever heard that? History is a great, I don't know if it's a history teacher, probably, they're probably just trying to, you know, keep their job. But uh, the history is a great teacher. And I thought about that phrase a lot, and I, I really honestly believe that that's true. Now, we know that in recent years, history, particularly our national history has come under a lot of scrutiny and there's a lot of tension surrounding it. But let's understand that history in and of itself is not good or bad. History simply is a study of the past. Now, when we study the past, we might find things that disturb us that we could quantify or qualify as bad. We, we might find things that are good. The history in and of itself is just a study of the past. Would you be really careful in a society uh, that specializes in superlatives, uh, not to quantify history as being all good or all bad. We, we tend to move to polar opposites. You've probably noticed that. When you look back at a relationship's history, when you look back at a nation's history, when you look back at a community's history, when you look back at the history of a company, a brand, an organization, 
you're likely going to find things that are both good and bad and some things that lie somewhere in between. But hopefully we can learn from all that we look back upon. And history in that way can be a great teacher. Uh, when I think about relationships, I, I heard uh, several years ago this idea from a relational coach. It was in some book I was reading that it was dangerous to get historical in relationships. And what they were saying is that you don't want to reach back in a relationship and find past hurts and failings and failures and things that were said and things that were done and bring them right to the present and, and show somebody you care about how bad they were three months ago, three years ago, six years ago, whenever that is. And so getting historical is always, for me, something negative. But, and I agree with that. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. But, but I've missed the value in getting historical in a good way in our relationships. Because I can look back, and just as much as I can find bad things in relationships, oftentimes I can find good things. Characteristics, virtues, um, acts that somebody did that remind me of this person uh, probably isn't a lost cause. They're made and they're formed in the image of God and he's doing things and can do things again through them. What's true for nations, what's true for relationships is true for companies and brands. So often you'll hear stories in a company's history of when they maybe lost sight, maybe uh, the winds of innovation and change kind of got them pursuing one path and they forgot their identity. And so they went back and they looked at their history and they said, wait a second, this is what we're all about. This is what we were formed to do. This is what we're passionate about. And it helped them get back on track. History is often a great teacher. So, so, so why this talk about history? I think it's important when we think of things that God calls us to do. We saw week one of our series on hospitality. We're calling it Pour the Cup, where we're looking at this biblical, spiritual discipline of welcoming of opening hearts and hands and homes to people. Uh, pouring the cup is just an image we're using because oftentimes we welcome people over coffee, over tea, uh, over something else. So when we pour the cup for people, we see that it's a mandate in scripture. We saw this in Romans and 1 Peter that we're called to offer and to practice hospitality. We saw last week that we see it in the example of Jesus, that God has often used hospitality to, to bring unity in his church. But I think for that to really deep within us to say we want to be people who live and practice hospitality. We have to see how it's a historical practice in the life of God's people. And so what I hope to do over the next several minutes is just take you on a small journey uh, through scripture. We're going to look uh, in detail at a couple passages in the Old Testament to help you see that God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. And God can use the hospitality of you as his child to accomplish his mission. And so if you have your Bibles, digital or physical, uh, find Genesis chapter 18. Before we read in Genesis 18, uh, give you a little bit of backstory. This, this kind of incident in Abraham and Sarah's life that we're gonna eavesdrop on, um, it has to have some context. So Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram. His name gets later changed to Abraham. And he tells him, in short, that he's going to be a blessing. He's going to be blessed, 
and the whole world will be blessed through him. That all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. We, we begin to see the, the scope of God's mission in saving the world here, that God wants to draw mankind back into relationship with himself. He's gonna do that ultimately through Jesus Christ and then our response of faith to him. But he wants to bless the world through Abraham. So that's the context. So when we, when we, when we get to Genesis 18, here's this geriatric man and his geriatric wife who they've been told they're going to bless the whole earth through their offspring. And yet we have this one recurring problem. Uh, they, A, are old. They, B, have not had any children. So how on earth is the world going to be blessed through them if there are no children? There are no offspring. There have been a series of ups and downs. The faith journey has been all over the place for Abraham and Sarah. And we get to Genesis 18 and God shows up. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Uh, Abraham is probably doing what he did on a lot of hot days. He's sitting outside and God appears to him and God appears in the form of these three men. It says in verse two, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get something to eat, get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seeds of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Um, my mind just likes to have pictures sometimes. And so here I am picturing this woman who's in her 90s and her husband comes in yelling, hey, quick, like, do you do anything quick at 90 something years old? Uh, get a loaf of bread together. <laughs> then he ran to the herd, selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So, so God appears to Abraham, these three guests show up, and what is Abraham and Sarah's response to them? They welcome these three guests. Hey, here's some water, wash your feet. Hey, Sarah, what? Sarah, what? You know, make some bread, and so, so Sarah makes some bread. Here's a calf, go prepare the calf. Let me bring you some cheese and some milk, and, and, and they, they prepare this feast. They welcome these strangers. What do we say in week one of our series on hospitality that ultimately at the heart of the words we even have in the New Testament for hospitality is this love for, friendship for a stranger. And so Abraham and Sarah welcome these three guests. They show them hospitality and look at what happens, verses nine and 10. Where's your wife, Sarah? The men ask. Well, there in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. That son would be Isaac. If you know the story of Isaac is that Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, and then Isaac becomes the one through whom God continues that blessing. God's mission promised in Genesis chapter 12 is accomplished in part because Abraham and Sarah extended hospitality. God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. 
Uh, give, give you some more, Genesis chapter 24. By this point, uh, Isaac is grown. Sarah, unfortunately, has died. And Abraham is nearing death. And as he nears death, he looks out again at this promise that God has made years ago at this point. He knows I'm gonna bless the earth through you. All nations of the world will be blessed through you. And yet Abraham looks and he has Isaac, but Isaac's not married. No wife, no kids. How does the blessing continue? How is the mission accomplished? And so Abraham goes and he gets a servant and he says, hey, I need you to go find a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant takes the challenge and he takes some of, of Abraham's livestock with and they make their way. And the, the servant comes to an area near the town of Nahor. And this is what happens, verse 11, Genesis 24. He had the camels, that's the servant, had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, the servant prays, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So here's the servant, he's praying. He's like, okay, uh, my master wants me to find a, a wife for his son. Uh, I, I wanna do that well. And so he's praying, God, please, 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 please show me, show me the right woman. May she be a woman who's hospitable, that she offers me a drink and offers my drink to the drink to my camels as well. And look what happens even as he's praying, verse 15. Before he finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The woman was, a very, was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, please, give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my Lord, she said and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels, um, which I think from our, our context in 2021, it seems a bit odd if someone offers you a drink to give them a nose ring. Um, I'm probably not gonna try that the next time I get a Coke at McDonald's, but this is what he does. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. So here's Rebecca who comes to the well, who comes to the watering place, and she does just as the servant has prayed. And what is she extending in that moment? Hospitality. Here, here, have something to drink. Here, I'll water your camels too. And what happens as a result of that? Isaac gets a wife, and Isaac and Rebecca have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob receives the inheritance of that blessing to Abraham. And then the tribes of Israel come from his sons. And God continues to perpetuate his mission of blessing the earth through them. 
And we don't have time to go into detail on the others, but we can go to the end of Genesis. And, and one of those sons to Jacob's name is Joseph. And through God's providence, his brothers have sold him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt. And, and through the wisdom that God provides, the, the Egyptians are cared for. They, 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 they store harvest up. And when famine comes, they're prepared. And, and meanwhile, his, his family is suffering. And so they come to Egypt and Joseph extends what looks a lot like hospitality to his family and welcomes them into Egypt and provides for them. And again, God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. You could go to Exodus and we can find Moses. And, and Moses, who's on the run, he's killed a man in Egypt and he's, he's moving into the wilderness of Sinai and, and there he comes to a watering place and there are some women watering there and he needs a drink and those women go home and they tell their father, hey, we ran into this guy and uh, he needed a drink and, and the father, Jethro or Raul, says, hey, why don't you go get him and bring him back? And he provides a place for Moses to stay and then he gives a daughter to Moses. And then while Moses is working for that same father-in-law who opened his house and his home to Moses, he has an encounter with God in the wilderness through a burning bush and God calls Moses to be a deliverer. And once again, we see that God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. And we could fast forward. We could fast forward to the walls of Jericho. And you can find this fortified city that stood between uh, the people of God and the land of their inheritance. And, and, and God has Israel send some of their spies in. And who opens up their home to those spies but a prostitute named Rahab? And they're able to identify the weaknesses and they're able to come back and champion. And we see once again that God uses the hospitality of people to accomplish his mission. And we, we could fast forward to, to Ruth and, and to Boaz, and, and there's this Moabite woman, Ruth, and, and, and Boaz welcomes her in. And oh, by the way, Ruth and Boaz give way to Obed, and it gives way to Jesse, who then has a son named David, who becomes the most prominent king in Israel, who, by the way, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes from that line. And God once again uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. And it's not just what we see in the old history of Israel. We see this in the time of Jesus. We, we spent time last week going over. If you haven't listened to it yet, I'd encourage you to go online and listen or watch. Jesus shows hospitality. I wanna focus particularly on how Jesus uh, provides for his mission even with his disciples. You look at the sending out of 12 and the sending out of 72, and he tells them to take very few, if any, provisions with them because when they go to towns, people will need to welcome them in so that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is, is shared. So God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. And oh, by the way, if you move into the book of Acts and you look at these uh, uh, biblical um, we would call them heroes, but these early followers of Jesus like Barnabas and, and Paul, and we, we look at uh, Apollos, and we look at Priscilla, and we look at Aquila, and we, we look at these early leaders in the church, and, and what happened is they travel from town to town, other people welcome them in and provide for them and through their hospitality that then they have a place that they can launch out and share the gospel of Jesus. And once again, we see the hospitality of God's people used to accomplish his mission. And if that's not enough for you, we can look to the leadership in the early church. And you can look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll get Titus chapter 1, where it outlines some of the characteristics, the qualifications, we would call that, for the elders, the overseers in, in the local church, these, these leaders of the local church. And what's mentioned there? They should be hospitable. They should be people with open hearts and open hands and open homes. 
Because if your leaders practice hospitality, what's most likely to happen among those who look to them? They'll practice hospitality. Because it's essential to the mission of God that God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. And we could be tempted to just get locked and say, well, yeah, Craig, that is really cool. Like, those were cultures that hospitality kind of rooted in them. We've talked about that in the early weeks of the series. But, but, but what about in 2020? What about in 2021? Well, what about back in, in, in 2000? What about back in the 1800s? Like, like, have we seen hospitality make a difference in the history of humanity since then? And the answer is yes. Think about what historians who aren't even followers of Jesus have told us about the days in the Roman Empire when deadly plagues would strike. Who were the people that courageously went at the risk of their own lives to bring people into their homes and tend to the needs of those who were suffering? Disciples of Jesus. Because God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. When you look at the history of the world, who have been the ones that so often run into areas where other people are running out of to provide help? Medical help, food, shelter, who are often the first people on the ground to restore communities, even our own day, after hurricanes and natural disasters? So often they're organizations or they're people that are connected to Jesus. Think about the numbers of hospitals that got their start from followers of Jesus, the number of orphanages that got their start, the number of rescue missions that got their start. Think about the number of, uh, of ways that, that famines are, are tended to in our world. It's through, so often it starts with followers of Jesus because God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. I watched a documentary here on Mother's Day. It's a couple years old. It's called Free Burma Rangers. If you haven't seen it, you can rent it on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it from Lifeway, however you wanna watch it. It chronicles the story of a man who has raised up a group of people who love Jesus. And they go into places in our world where nobody else wants to go and they rescue people. And they provide medical care and they provide food. And he's just someone who loves Jesus with all of his heart. And he said, listen, if God can use me to help somebody else, then this world becomes a better place and, and, and God's kingdom advances. Why? Because God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. Do you and I understand that we're a part of that story? That God wants to use your hospitality to help accomplish his mission? that if you and I will live with open hearts, hearts open to him, and we'll live with open hands because we're changed by him, he'll use our homes, he'll use our resources to make a difference. I love how Adele Calhoun says it in her description of the discipline of hospitality in her book, The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. She says this, the discipline of hospitality includes sharing your home, food, resources, car, and all that you call your own so that another might experience the reality of God's welcoming heart. God uses our hospitality, he uses our welcome to help people experience the welcome of the kingdom. What stands in our way? I think commonly there are some myths that we believe. They're myths often rooted in what we have or how nice our stuff is. I've heard many people say in my time just as a minister, I probably heard it growing up too, that it's fine for other people to be hospitable because they have more, they have bigger, they have better. And if I get that, then I'll be hospitable, but that's a myth. Do we ever see in scripture where hospitality is determined by whether or not you have the right size of home or trailer or modular or apartment or condo? 
Do we ever see anywhere where it has to do with how much money you make or what type of food you can provide? We don't see those things. In fact, we don't even see hospitality being dependent upon having a home. Hello, Abraham and Sarah lived in a tent. Hello, Jesus had no place to lay his head. And yet they could be hospitable because hospitality is not rooted in what you have, but it's rooted in your heart. Will you be welcoming? Will you be humble? Will you serve someone? And what if we as followers of Jesus could be people who said, listen, I don't care if I don't have the reclaimed barnwood table that looks perfect. I don't care if I have fine china. I don't care if I can even serve the best food. I don't care if I have the right type of coffee. Maybe I just have Folgers. I don't care if I have this. I don't care if I have that. But I'm going to open up my heart and my hands and my home. God will use that hospitality to accomplish his mission as people receive the welcome of Christ through your welcome. Will we be men and women, young and old, who say, listen, I want my, my resources, the ones that God's provided me to be used to help other people. Do you know if we will just start practicing this radical, ordinary hospitality we've been talking about, uh, that if we just start with it around our tables where it leads, how do you grow to have a heart to welcome foster children into your home? How do you grow to the place where you'll be a safe family? How do you grow to the place where you will adopt a child? How do you grow to the place where will you allow a stranger to sleep in your house who's homeless? How do, you, how do you get to those places? By starting in the little ways of saying, God, just take what I have and, and use it for you. Let me open up my heart, my hand, and my home to you to welcome the stranger, to welcome the friend, to welcome the family. And God will use your hospitality to accomplish his mission. At Lebanon Christian Church, one of our core values is very intentionally that we wanna be a welcoming church. We understand that our welcome helps people feel welcomed into the kingdom. People experience Christ through our welcome, Jesus through our welcome. But do you know that a great welcome at Lebanon Christian Church doesn't begin with a great guest services team? which I honestly believe we have. If you find people with their blue shirts that say, how can I help? They're part of our guest services team. But that will always fall short unless the welcome we offer here first begins outside of these walls. If the welcome we have here on Sunday is an overflow of what happens in our lives individually, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that's when we get to a transformative welcome in this place. And oh, by the way, the welcome that we offer is not just for people wearing blue shirts. If God calls us all to hospitality, then we all have a responsibility in this place when these doors are open and outside these walls to extend the hospitality, the welcome of Jesus to other people. And when we do, God uses our hospitality to accomplish his mission. Keep in mind as we talk about hospitality, we got just one week left to talk about hospitality. We're gonna take a break next week and do some special things for the fourth and, and how that connects with faith. Um, but July 11th, we're gonna, we're gonna end this. And as we continue thinking about that, we need to remember that the heart behind our welcome is Jesus. You heard Kurt articulate that in his time for communion. Uh, Jesus welcomes us. God welcomes us through Jesus. We were cut off from fellowship with him because of our sin, because the wrong things that we do, and every one of us does them, we all sin against God. And we're broken in our relationship with God because of those sins. But God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we could be made right with God. And when we have faith in Jesus Christ, what he's done, we believe in our hearts, we confess with our mouths <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. When that faith drives us into the waters of baptism, we are, we are made new. God comes to live inside of us. 
and we are welcomed into the family of God with renewed purpose and hope, power. And that's the welcome we're trying to model for others. That's the welcome we ourselves have received. I shared in the very beginning about history being a great teacher, and I mentioned companies and organizations and brands. I wanna share the story of two companies with you. Uh, one was formed in 1888, one in 1894. In 1894, John Hillerich uh, had watched his father uh, make furniture, uh, owned a woodworking business. On the side, John Hillerich loved to make baseball bats. When he took over the company from his father, he quickly made that the primary item in their catalog, making baseball bats. In fact, it wasn't just baseball bats for anybody. It was personalized, customized bats for professional baseball players. And shortly thereafter, John Hillerich founded the Louisville Slugger Company. And for more than 135 years, Louisville Slugger has been making personalized, customized bats for professional baseball players. That's at the heart of their mission. Now, they may make helmets, they may make batting gloves, they may make uh, fielding gloves, but the heart of what they do is making personalized bats for professional baseball players. In fact, there's this really cool place in the Louisville Slugger Museum that not very many people get to go. It's called their Bat Vault. I had the opportunity on a tour that was being offered by their CEO to, to walk in there. I was a guest of somebody else, so once in a lifetime thing, and uh, you can actually see the very first bat they made for Babe Ruth. Personalized bat for a professional baseball player. I sat up in the boardroom uh, and the CEO was speaking and he shared how there have been times in Louisville Slugger's history where they started to kind of diverge from their mission. Uh, the, the illustration he used was uh, at one point in the early 2000s, they started trying to get into the golf business. They were making these really cool golf gloves, uh, but it was detracting from their mission of making personalized, customized bats for professional baseball players. And so they reoriented around that. And guess who still supplies more bats than any other bat company for professional baseball? Louisville Slugger. Well, six years before John Hillerich was turning bats and building Louisville Slugger, a man named George Eastman had a passion for capturing moments that families had together. And so he founded uh, the Eastman Kodak Camera Company. It wouldn't be long before Kodak kind of became the primary word people talked of when they talked of cameras. In fact, if you were probably older than the age of 35, which I know that eliminates some of you, you likely at some point in your childhood heard someone talk about a Kodak what? A Kodak moment. Even though other people were taking cameras, even though you may have a Kodak moment with another, another brand, like, like it was this moment that you captured something that was important to you. In fact, there were places at theme parks and zoos and, and, and in airport terminals where there would be a, a big Kodak sign and you could get your Kodak moment. You could capture your moment. How many of us use Kodak cameras still today? Chances are you use Canon or Nikon or what's on your phone. Why is it that Kodak is not synonymous with great cameras anymore? Well, in the early 2000s, as digital cameras were taking off, Kodak actually built a digital camera, one of the first digital cameras. But something had happened as the company grew, they lost focus of their mission to capture moments and instead said, no, we can make a lot of money. And so as they produced these inexpensive cameras, they said, let's just, let's just concentrate on selling these accessories and these consumables like film and, 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 and flashes. And 
we'll have our, our developing studios and we'll just make money off people. So when the digital cameras started to be, become more commonplace, they said, listen, let's not do this. It's gonna, it's gonna hurt our bottom line. Instead of focusing on the mission of capturing moments, they missed out on the moment. In 2012, they were too far behind the game and Kodak filed for bankruptcy. And that's why oftentimes we don't talk about Kodak anymore. But what if they had kept sight of their mission to capture moments? They would have been willing to forfeit other things along the way. The difference between Louisville Slugger and Kodak is that one kept with what helped them accomplish the mission. And I wonder if we as disciples of Jesus will keep with what helps us accomplish the mission. If we'll choose not to lose sight of what's most important and we will do whatever it takes to offer hospitality, to have open hearts that lead to open hands, that lead to open homes, so that the welcome of Jesus can be extended to any and all and the world can be changed. God uses the hospitality of his people to accomplish his mission. May that be true of you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word and just the wealth of example and clarity that's there. God, as we hear about the history of your hospitality, may we anchor it beneath your words of offering hospitality in Romans 12 and practicing hospitality in 1 Peter 4. God, God, God help us to be people who live this because it's, it's, it's how you love to work. God, thank you for welcoming, welcoming us into your life. And may we do the same for others. In your name we pray and trust, amen.